0: It's not just the rapid transport, but while you're in that transport, getting the patient to definitive surgical care, if you provide blood product resuscitation, you've got a much better chance of having a survivor at the end of all that.
1: Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast, This show brings you a first-hand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered.
2: I'm your host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon, fellow of the American College of Surgeons, and Excelsior Surgery Society member. I'm joined today by Excelsior Society President, Colonel Dr. Jeremy Cannon. In this episode, we will feature military specific curriculum developed by the American College of Surgeons and the Uniformed Services University. You will hear a short sample of the excellent military specific content available on the American College of Surgeons website with a link available on our website at wardocspodcast.com. Jeremy, please give us a brief background and tell us about the military specific curriculum.
0: Well, the military specific curriculum or the M curriculum is truly the brainchild of Peggy Knudsen and Joe Galante. Dr. Knudsen has been the medical director of the Military Health System Partnership for several years now. And she worked with Joe Galante, who is a Navy trauma surgeon and works at uh, UC Davis in California. And they have really pulled off this incredible feat of essentially translating the KSAs and the clinical management guidelines for combat casualty care into a multimedia uh, curriculum that's available online. So it's readily available on the American College of Surgeons website. And as you go through it, you see how it ties directly into the KSAs.
2: In lesson 28 of the military specific curriculum is damage control resuscitation. So you're a leading expert in hemorrhagic shock and even have a journal article in the New England Journal of Medicine, which we're going to bring into this discussion. Jeremy, would you first describe to our audience what hemorrhagic shock is and its relationship with damage control surgery and resuscitation?
0: Well, hemorrhagic shock is, of course, massive blood loss leading to inadequate oxygen delivery to critical tissue beds. Although simple in concept, it is very difficult to, first of all, recognize and then optimally manage. So, this really is the central challenge of combat casualty care, of much of trauma surgery. And I'm blessed to be in a, a place at the University of Pennsylvania where damage control is sort of you know, in our DNA, so to speak. Damage control surgery was really popularized by Dr. Mike Rotundo and Dr. William Schwab. And they saw the benefits of applying a Navy concept of saving the ship by just partitioning off an area that was damaged. So you do just what's absolutely necessary inside the patient's abdomen or chest or wherever they're bleeding, and then come back to fight another day after the damage control resuscitation, which is what we're gonna be talking about today.
2: One of the aspects of hemorrhagic shock that I try to convey to our residents, and though I'm not a trauma surgeon, I am a vascular surgeon, is that we need to rapidly restore the physiology of a human to a more normal state. And that's really a critical aspect. Why is time and shock so harmful to the human body?
0: Well, as the effects of shock build up over time, it becomes more and more impossible to reverse those effects. And ultimately, it becomes truly irreversible. So you have to move with a sense of urgency, that you have to intervene in a timely manner, or your interventions are really gonna be too little too late. So it's that accumulation of the effects of that inadequate oxygen delivery to those critical tissue beds, that at some point builds up to such a degree that it can't be reversed.
2: So in combat surgery, the military has moved to low titer, old whole blood nearly exclusively for the initial resuscitation. Why was crystalloid resuscitation less than ideal, as was seen in the early years of combat in Iraq and Afghanistan? You
0: know, I think that's probably one of the most important examples of losing a lesson that had been learned in previous conflicts. So if you go back to the history books and see what they used in World War II, in Korea, in Vietnam, it was whole blood. In some cases, it was was component therapy, but really it was a resuscitation fluid that had oxygen carrying capacity and hemostatic potential. And crystalloid has none of that. It's asanguinous. It has no coagulation capacity. And in fact, it is acidemic and dilutes the clotting factors that remain inside the patient. So it dilutes the clotting factors. It dilutes the hemoglobin and really creates an acidemic environment. And so in some ways, it's, it's worse than nothing, quite honestly.
2: So when you have a patient who comes in following a trauma, how do you diagnose hemorrhagic shock and how do you know when it has become irreversible?
0: Well, that's why they pay me the big bucks. It's very challenging. Some patients come in and it's quite obvious that they have profound hemorrhagic shock. In other cases, they're so well compensated and the shock has not progressed to the point of being incredibly obvious that it's quite subtle. So there are indicators from a laboratory standpoint. There are indicators from a physiologic standpoint. But for those patients where it's subtle because they're compensating so well, we've actually turned to a machine learning approach to parse those patients out. Short of having a computer algorithm, there are some scoring tools like the ABC score developed by Brian Cotton and Tim Nunez. That's a score that adds up to as many as four points based on tachycardia, hypotension, penetrating mechanism, and a positive fast. If you have all four of those, uh, then you have basically a 100% chance of needing massive transfusion, and there's a 100% chance that you're in hemorrhagic shock. If you have less than four, then it's less than a hundred percent chance and it starts to become more subtle. And that's where you need that clinical judgment or a machine learning algorithm. As far as when it becomes irreversible, we always want to hope for the best. And we short of the patient not having a pulse where we take a slightly different approach and end up in some cases performing a resuscitative thoracotomy. Short of that, we really try to pull out all the stops to to give them blood products to pull them up out of that death spiral.
2: So one of the aspects I noticed when I looked at the military-specific curriculum is that there are four parts with 20 KSAs, so knowledge, skills, and abilities for damage control resuscitation. Please tell us why the curriculum is divided in this manner.
0: Well, you know, I think the uh, designers were very savvy in tying the lesson to each of these KSAs. If you look at the structure of the curriculum, it starts out with what are the performance improvement metrics that we think are most critical and that really came from the joint trauma system. If you look at the damage control resuscitation M curriculum module, there's a list of six performance improvement metrics and, and this really is the distillation of very complex concept damage control resuscitation. So early administration of blood products, ideally pre-hospital and within 30 minutes if you're activating massive transfusion, then you need to aim for a one-to-one-to-one ratio. Give calcium early and they actually give you the doses. Give calcium as you're continuing your MTP. Give TXA within three hours. And all patients are receiving MTP should get either platelets or cryoprecipitate or whole blood. So it just, it starts with that distillation and then it expands on each of those throughout the course of the curriculum.
2: So hemorrhage control or stopping the bleeding is certainly important in treating hemorrhagic shock. And if we dive into your New England Journal of Medicine Review article, this requires a chain of survival. Can you tell us what is the severe hemorrhage chain of survival?
0: So the chain of survival is borrowed from cardiac arrest and starting that basic life support early on. You know, if you think of the equivalent for hemorrhage it's either applying direct pressure or if it's bleeding from an extremity, this is a combat casualty care lesson learned, put a tourniquet above the site of hemorrhage. So it can start pre-hospital. If you have pre-hospital blood products, then you'd want to initiate those. And then as we were discussing just a minute ago, there has to be a sense of urgency actually from the very beginning. Getting that patient to definitive care is so important. If you don't get them to a, a trauma center where they can undergo definitive hemorrhage control surgery then these measures are not going to be effective so transport the patient as quickly as possible and that that I would say is an invaluable link in this chain of survival
2: so since we're talking about a military specific curriculum when you talk about the combat casualty chain of survival, we think about tactical combat casualty care. How would you tell our listeners the chain of survival is a little bit different in the military than it would be in the civilian chain of survival?
0: Well, in a military environment, there's a strong possibility that you've got bullets flying and you're in a tactical situation that you need to return fire. You need to ensure that the medic does not become a casualty. We have Frank Butler to thank for this incredible gift of TCCC or tactical combat casualty care principles that keep our medics safe and keep their casualty or give their casualty the best possible chance of getting to definitive surgical care. Uh, So yeah, it starts pre-hospital with those TCCC concepts, but then the next step is really to get that casualty back to a surgeon as quickly as possible and hopefully with some blood products along the way so that they're in good shape for surgery when they get to that surgical capability.
2: So when we talk about the hemorrhagic shock, we can't overlook the fact that damage control resuscitation is really an, a key treatment in that disease process. And so that's applied from the point of injury through the subsequent roles of care through CASAVAC and the medevac chain of evacuating patients from theater. How is the damage control resuscitation in your mind applied when you're dealing with hemorrhagic shock in the military.
0: Well, there are both medications you can give, so TXA, and we've mentioned that briefly a little while ago. But then also blood products. What we saw from Afghanistan, especially, is that if you give blood products during transport, casualties do much better. Stacy Shackelford in her JAMA article demonstrated that very convincingly. That. It's not just the rapid transport, but while you're in that transport, getting the patient to definitive surgical care, if you provide blood product resuscitation, you've got a much better chance of having a survivor at the end of all that.
2: So if someone listening to this said to themselves, I'd really like to know more about this military specific curriculum. What would you say are the most important principles of damage control resuscitation as described in the American College of Surgeon, Uniformed Services University, military-specific curriculum?
0: Well, I'd first of all commend you to just pop onto the uh, American College of Surgeons website, look up M-curriculum, and I think you'll really be amazed. As you mentioned, this is Lesson 28. There's a vast array of different topics, and within this topic, damage control resuscitation, it starts at the very beginning with KSA-1, which is identify the expected outcomes and performance measures used for monitoring damage control resuscitation. So I talked about some of those early administration of blood products, the one-to-one-to-one ratio, giving calcium early and continuing calcium during the resuscitation, giving TXA early, and making sure that either platelets or cryo or whole blood are part of that mix uh, is so important. It's a very well-assembled curriculum, it's multimedia, it appeals to the YouTube generation, I think you'll really be quite impressed. And at the same time, it's a great academic content and there's some very realistic uh, combat casualty care scenarios at the end of each module that will sort of bring it home for you.
2: So you have a trauma patient who comes in in hemorrhagic shock and then you apply the treatment of damage control resuscitation what then becomes the endpoint of that damage control resuscitation to move you to the next phase of their care?
0: That's a great question. Damage control resuscitation is nothing without damage control surgery. So they have to go together. I mean, you can deliver a picture-perfect resuscitation and yet end up with a non-survivor if you don't get rapid control of the source of bleeding. The clock is ticking. You've got to get on top of the of the bleeding with your surgical intervention or your interventional radiology colleagues, but somehow you got to get on top of the bleeding. So control the hemorrhage first and foremost. Then we haven't really talked about how to measure coagulopathy. I think it's important along the way to have sort of a, a gut check, how are we doing? And one lesson that I learned during my deployments was to use what we call a viscoelastic test or thromboelastography. There's another type of test called Rotem, which is essentially the same. I'm most familiar with TEG. We use that routinely. We take a TEG early. In the midst of the resuscitation, we reference that to see what we might have missed. Interestingly, it's most often cryoprecipitate, so we end up giving that. And then we check another one towards the end. How have we been doing? Is there anything else we need to sort of fine-tune or touch up? Another piece of this is maintaining normothermia. So our trauma bay is heated up to 80 degrees, our trauma OR is warmed, and then we have an underbody bear hugger under the patient that's going nonstop through the, through the operation. We give warm fluids through our rapid infuser or through our, um, through our fluid warmer. So, yeah, control the hemorrhage, measure, and then reverse any coagulopathy and maintain or, or get back to normothermia.
2: We interviewed previously Dr. Spinell, and he told us the interesting story about how the one-to-one-to-one resuscitation occurred and that that created a paradigm shift in military medicine. How do you think about delivering resuscitation to a patient, whether it be one-to-one-to-one or whole blood? Do you have a a way in which you distinguish the two, or do you go by what whole blood's available first? And so I'm going to grab that. You know,
0: I agree that that's a fascinating story and one that needs to be told over and over again, because it's a great example of how we forgot a lesson learned about the value of balanced resuscitation. And then thankfully, through Phil's great work and his work with Matthew Boardman, his fellow, to get us back to balanced resuscitation, so important and truly was a paradigm shift. I think, and I hope that Phil would agree with me, that whole blood really is the simplest and most elegant and most straightforward way to administer one-to-one-to-one. It's logistically easier. You're getting much less, and Phil actually demonstrated this in another paper that he published, much less preservative, so much less citrate. And citrate actually, as it accumulates, can contribute to coagulopathy. It's not metabolized as quickly in the liver in patients who are in hemorrhagic shock. So it, it can chelate calcium. It can essentially serve as an anticoagulant. So you're minimizing that citrate, and really, I think, restoring the patient back to normal physiology as quickly as possible when you're using one-to-one-to-one in the form of whole blood. And the anesthesiologists, the trauma bay nurses, the ICU nurses who actually are plugging these bags into the rapid infuser or giving them sort of one after the other, they say it's much easier to give just logistically. It's, I think, really the optimal approach.
2: So put us in your shoes for a minute. So you're in the operating room, you're in the middle of a damage control surgery, say for instance, a laparotomy, and you find that the patient is in hemorrhagic shock. What's going through your mind and what are you trying to discuss with the other members of your team?
0: First of all, I am very focused on the field and I wanna be sure that we don't have ongoing occult hemorrhage. Have I ruled out hemorrhage in one of the chest cavities? Do we have pericardial tamponade that I've missed? Is there something that I'm missing? And then I'll check in with our anesthesiologist. What what do their ratios look like? Are they uh, looking at the tag? Do we actually have the, the results from the trauma bay? Have they kept up with the calcium? So we just try to maintain communication and see what what it is that we can potentially reverse.
2: So are you going through the traditional four-quadrant packing and then sort of gathering your wits after you've identified major hemorrhage sources and then discussion with your anesthesiologist?
0: You know, I have what I call an opening sequence. Try to do it the same every time. So stem to stern, Mm -hmm. cyphoid to pubis, midline incision with a couple swipes of the scalpel, get in at the umbilicus. open the fascia with big curved mayos. I pack all four quadrants and these, uh, these patients. Often the blood is just welling up and even if they're a penetrating patient, the ones we see have six, eight, 10, 12 holes and so it's not like it's just coming from one quadrant, it's often coming from several, so pack all four. And then give our anesthesia team a, a little bit of a chance to catch up. You know, I'm also, if I don't already have femoral arterial access, I'm using that time to maybe think about getting a femoral artery if there's a possibility that there's going to be a difficult vascular exposure, I'm thinking of maybe partial balloon aortic occlusion as well.
2: What would be your then next step once you've identified that you are resuscitated to a point that allows you to look for bleeding and how do you decide which quadrant you're going to look at first?
0: Yeah, I save the best for last. So I always go where the bleeding is less, just sort of quickly remove those packs and confirm that we don't have a significant hematoma underlying and then i then i move in for the action so yeah i circle around to the area of most concern i'd save that for last
2: i think that's just a general principle ruptured aortic aneurysm you get supraceliac control iliac arteries and then you go into the ruptured aneurysm So what do you see as the future of damage control resuscitation in the treatment of hemorrhagic shock and what research needs to be done to improve it?
0: So really there are two aspects that I think continue to frustrate and and nag academically-minded trauma surgeons. One is the early recognition of the patient in hemorrhagic shock who's compensated but is still about to die. So that subtle patient where they've presented Within enough time to be able to achieve surgical hemostasis, if we could only move a little bit faster, if we could only recognize and diagnose the fact that they're in hemorrhagic shock a little bit sooner, if we could mobilize the team and the resources to get on top of that a little bit earlier, then we might end up with an alive patient. So that's challenge one. And I've already mentioned a little bit earlier, machine learning algorithms, artificial intelligence, those sort of things. These new approaches really, I think, can be applied to one of the thorniest clinical problems that I face, and we're excited to, to be looking into some of those applications. Another is just the team aspect of it. Damage control resuscitation is one of those things where it sounds easy in principle, quite straightforward, you just give the patient back what they bled in the form of whole blood, but to actually implement it and implement it in sequence, And to have everyone on the same page, that turns out to be a real challenge. So we're working on some applications that provide decision support or a nudge and really get the whole team on the same page. A, this patient is in hemorrhagic shock. B, they've got this amount percent chance of needing massive transfusion. Have we activated massive transfusion yet? Yes or no. If we have, then it starts to track amount of products that you've given and how you're doing on the ratios so getting the team all on the same page and and making sure that they're moving together towards the same objective and not forgetting some of these details like did we give calcium have we given txa did we check the tag yet so pulling all those details together in a single place has been a real challenge and it's one that we're excited to hopefully offer some solutions to
2: So do we presently know when a patient's decompensated beyond the point of no return? And does that differ in a military population that is in a combat zone?
0: Short of a patient with no pulse, always assume that there's a chance. And then even in a patient with no pulse, if they're young and vital and don't have a lot of comorbidities, I think it's still possible to pull that rabbit out of the hat. And we see that occasionally here in our trauma center, and we've seen that in theater. So through the judicious and appropriate use of resuscitative thoracotomy, through novel approaches like partial ballooning or occlusion, through damage control resuscitation, pulling all these elements together, I think we're seeing more unexpected survivors than ever before.
2: I would agree with that. I think that hemorrhagic shock is unique in that it is, everyone has a fighting chance almost in every initial circumstance. I, you think sometimes somebody's not going to make it, and then you say, there's no way that that's going to happen. And sure enough, like you said, the rabbit gets pulled out of the hat. Well, for those interested in the military-specific curriculum, go to apps.facs.org slash curriculum I would advise everyone to go check out this invaluable resource, particularly if you're a military surgeon or someone interested in military medicine. Dr. Cannon, thank you very much for your time and for joining us today.
0: It was a great pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity.
2: Thank you for listening to War
1: Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast and rate and review this episode, and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team WarDocs on WarDocsPodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, WarDocs has you covered. Spread the word.